Okay, good morning everyone. Um, it's great to see so many people here. My name is Richard King, I'm a research fellow here at Chatham House. Um, it's very pleasure to welcome you to Chatham House and uh, particularly to this event today on the end of cheap food and what it means for development. So, um, today's event is uh, the launch of uh, this joint report from Oxfam and IES, uh, Precarious Lives, Work, Food and Care after the global food crisis. And it's the culmination of four years of joint research between the Institute of Development Studies and Oxfam, as well as uh, 10 research partners or research partners in 10 countries. Um, and it's essentially been a uh, collaborative process over those four years looking at the impacts of um, high volatile food prices on people's everyday lives and their lived experience, the impacts and the consequences. Um, full disclosure, I was previously at, at Oxfam and involved in the uh, research, so I have a vested interest in it. Um, I think we're in a very different price context now, globally, to when the research started out. Um, obviously, with the 2008 global spike 2011, and things have changed somewhat since then. But as I think Pat will speak to, and uh, as the report shows, there are some very enduring consequences uh, for people on the front end of those shocks. So the format for today, uh, we are first going to hear from uh, Pat Scott Villiers, who is a research fellow at the Institute of Development Studies. Um, she's a co-lead uh, on this uh, work with uh, Naomi Hussain, who's in the back there. Um, she's also a co-leader of the Power and Popular Politics Cluster at IDS, and she's going to speak for 30 minutes or so on the content of the research and the report. And then we've got three great discussants who are going to speak for around 10 minutes each. Um, first, Elizabeth Fowler, who is Emeritus Professor at the University of Warwick. She works on social policy dimensions of food and human nutrition. And she's going to speak to some of the implications of uh, food poverty in the UK. And then we have um, David Khalib Octinio, who's from the Coalition for Constitutional Implementation in Kenya. He is a social justice activist and human rights defender. Um, and he's been working to ensure that people uh, are working towards a full and proper implementation of the 2010 Kenyan constitution. And he's going to be speaking to us about food price crisis and popular struggles against hunger in Kenya. And then we move to Viraj Patnik, who is from the Indian Right to Food movement. Uh, he's the principal advisor to the commissioners of the Supreme Court on the right to food case in India and was closely associated with the drafting and lobbying of the 2013 National Food Security Act. And he's going to be speaking to us on the implications for the global right to food movement. And then, if I do my job correctly, we should have about 40 minutes for open discussion, and that is very much discussion, not Q&A necessarily. So I'm very keen to hear your perspectives on the issue as well. But before any of that, we are going to um, hear briefly from John McGrath, who is a uh, researcher at Oxfam, working on climate change and its implications for food and farming. And he's just going to say a few words on what some of this research means for Oxfam. Yeah, thank you, John. Thank you, Richard. Um, 
I took over from Richard in the, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I took over from Richard as a kind of Oxfam liaison with IBS at the end of, the, uh, of this period of research. And I, I will be very brief because I had the pleasure of hearing Pata speak at Oxfam yesterday. And uh, she, was, she is far more eloquent than I could ever be. Uh, and I would also draw your attention to an even more eloquent video which she has made, which is on the IBS website. Um, so just a few thoughts. This, this report is about the interrelationship, as Richard said, of food, of care, and of, of work, and the way in which that relationship, or those relationships, are evolving ever more quickly um, and in new ways since the food price crisis. And colleagues will talk, I think, particularly about food and about care. Um, I just wanted to say a few words about uh, some of the um, findings from the research about work um, which seem to be particularly important because one of the pleasures of this research is that you really hear <coughs> the voices of people who are at the sharp end of having to earn an income in even more stressed circumstances. And perhaps what comes out very strongly is that work is seen by, I think, everybody not just as a source of income, to feed themselves and feed their families, but work is itself a source of satisfaction. It's a source of self-worth, of pride. It's a way in which humans feel fulfilled, if the work is fulfilling, and which creates a sense of community and participation in society. And increasingly, it seems to us that people's experience of work is not about that. It is about atomization, it is about exploitation, it is about work that is deeply unfulfilling and unsatisfactory. And so you hear words of frustration, of despair, and of anger. And I was particularly thinking about this because by sheer coincidence, um, two days ago, the 7th of September, um, the uh, Oxfam Scotland um, they have put out a new report. I haven't read it all, but it's interviews with 1,500 people in Scotland about what their opinions are about what makes for decent work. Uh, this was done with the University of the West of Scotland and Warwick Institute for Employment Research. Um, and the five priorities that people come up with are a decent hourly rate, uh, job security, a uh, paid leave, a safe working environment, and a supportive manager. And it is perhaps significant that so many people say that no, those aspects of work are no longer available, and particularly job security. In Scotland, apparently, 138,000 employees are on temporary contracts. And it feels to, to me that you know this is a very good illustration of the way in which work is increasingly being organised with relatively small groups of relatively privileged workers in formal employment and then work systems which depend upon a huge mass of workers who are in informal employment but are actually bound to the company, the corporation, um, in ways which which uh, make, it make it impossible for them to refuse to do work, 
uh, which put them at the back and call of companies. I won't name any particular companies, but there's <coughs> one that's been in the news lately that is rather celebrated for this kind of zero-hour contract, uh, and ways in which it um, legitimises companies paying below the legal minimum wages. And so I think what uh, the report brings out is that this is becoming the norm across all countries, and sadly in developed <coughs> countries like the UK. Uh, and so it feels to me that this is a call for reasserting the right to work and rights at work as equally important. I'll call it a day there and come over to Great, okay. Thanks very much, uh, John and Emma. We're launching this report. It's it's the fruit of, a, a, of an engagement with people all across the world. Um, and basically, the, the, the big thing that we learned uh, was that the global food crisis began in 2007-8 and, and, and ostensibly finished in 2011-12. It brought in its wake really significant and, and wide-reaching uh, impacts on people on low incomes in across the developing world. Um, and these are people, um, many people on low incomes, even before the food crisis, would have been spending as much as half their their, their cash income on uh, basic foods like rice and wheat and maize. And so for them, it, it was an enormous shock when prices started to go up very fast. Now this graph here from FAO is a, a shows the uh, global uh, index of prices of, of uh, basic staples. And on the left hand side you've got 1990 and it goes through to 2015. Uh, and what you see is that uh, the index is actually set somewhere here in 2000. And you see that prices were relatively stable uh, on the international market for, for two decades. And then suddenly you see this enormous spike in prices. Prices doubled and tripled uh, within a matter of months. Then they fell and they rose again. And this transmitted through, uh, certainly in all the 10 countries in which we did research, which is in this report, it transmitted through to, to, to local food prices in every case. Interestingly, when prices then rose again on the global markets in 2011, um, the transmission effects were slightly different. And we, we think that that's probably related to government reactions. The first time they were taken completely by surprise. Uh, by the time of the second time, certain governments had decided on protection measures and certain others hadn't. And so you get a different degree. But generally <coughs> speaking, in our 10 countries, we found that food prices at the local level, after the period of the crisis, when the, the food is coming down on the international market, <coughs> food prices often remain very high. Uh, and so people were still having to pay, certainly a lot more than they used to pay before the, the food crisis. So what happened in that period after 2011, 2012? Uh, the, 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 the media quieted down, policies of debate on the matter uh, quite down as well. Uh, why? Because it, it was felt that we weathered the crisis. People on low incomes had managed to do so. Uh, 
it was it was deemed a, a case of resilience. People have been resilient, and there had been a recovery. That what we were seeing was in fact a, a, a necessary adjustment in in market prices across the world. Prices went down, as we saw in the graph. Um, agricultural prices did indeed correct. Um, people were deemed to have been resilient. We didn't see, although we saw riots of different kinds, uh, some of them ascribed to the price of food, uh, there was a general feeling that people had managed to, to overcome the, the troubles. Wages eventually adjusted. So wages did, in many cases, go up. Um, and income consumption uh, figures also went up. So global poverty was deemed to have declined. Um, and therefore, we're looking at, a, some people even claim that the food price crisis, the, the, the forcing of, of prices into the sort of global reality, was in fact a necessary part of reducing poverty. But our research, which asked uh, about the impact of the food crisis and the post-food crisis era on people on low incomes and the impact on their lives and their well-being, uh, would question the ease with which we can speak about uh, this idea of resilience and recovery, uh, because there were vast hidden costs to that adjustment that people made. So prices went down, yes, but not by so much, and quite slowly, so there was a lag. And in that lag time, many people made decisions on a trajectory of change that already exists in every country, in a different form, in every place, um, in terms of sort of involvement in the market and so on. But people made decisions in that, that, that period, which is quite a long period between 2008 and 2011, which then changed their lives. Um, in many of the locations where we were working, retail prices remained high. But producer prices uh, very often fell. So you get this kind of uh, uh, ironic situation where a small farmer is still unable to produce, you know, to, to, to make a good living, whereas at the same time the food as a market is, is expensive. Um, all of the people in all of the places where we were investigating reported on a new level of stress, so their lives were different now in the post-food crisis period, and we'll talk to you about that. Um, and wages did indeed adjust, but the question is what were people doing for those wages? So overall, what we were seeing was that, yes, income consumption increased. It had to, because people had to pay more money for food. So they had to earn more money. Um, and the people in making this adjustment, they were, they were doing it in a, in a state of really severe exposure. They were not protected. There were different levels of protection in different places. But by and large, most of the people were, were managing this adjustment without protection. How do we know this? Well, uh, Richard's already pointed out, so I won't go into this in detail, it's also in the report. We were in 10 different countries over four years, going back and back to the same households and, and also speaking to um, uh, people in the community and around, um, to ask them about what's happening in their lives, uh, what work were they doing, what decisions were they making, what, how were they caring for themselves and others, how were they eating, uh, and what sort of support were they getting from different institutions. Um, we also tracked prices at national level and, and uh, put all that together in annual uh, syntheses 
Um, and now we're at the uh, at the point of, of synthesizing the whole the whole rod. So what did we find? Two main things. The first thing that people told us about was they felt under enormous pressure to raise more cash. They needed more, more food. Yes, you got some initial sort of cutting down of, of what you were eating, um, eating less, eating less good quality food. But fairly quickly, people went out and looked for new sources of cash. So women who had not been in the market workplace before went out and did more of that than had been the case before. Uh, young people started moving. They started being even more mobile than they might have been previously. So they were out, they were moving away from home, moving further, taking, taking more risks, um, moving around cities just in search of work. Um, this new work for cash was often very precarious. So uh, a lot of work that you didn't know whether you were going to be able to get work the next day, the, the, the amount of money you could get for it, you were in competition with lots of other people, so the, 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 the income, the wages were low. Uh, very often very hazardous uh, activities. They could be hazardous because uh, you were choosing to do them yourself. You, uh, well, I'll give you an example in a minute. Or hazardous because the companies that were, were giving you temporary employment didn't really have to care about your, your welfare or if you got sick. Um, and this idea of portfolio work, having to do lots of different things in order to create enough cash in a day to pay for food and the basics of life. Another thing people did, many people did, is they set up small businesses, again, at a, a, a sort of increasingly fast rate. Uh, but they were joining into an already overcrowded informal sector. Uh, and so they were in competition with one another. They spoke about their little food kiosks or the transport jobs or adding uh, value to agricultural products. Well, they were doing that in competition with their neighbors and people in neighboring areas and so on. They, they spoke about the, the, the rate at which they were failing as well as the rate at which they were succeeding. Um, on the land, we saw, we saw people selling land at, at, at the early stages of the crisis. Um, and then we saw people investing in, in, in small areas of cash crops. If they could, they were adding irrigation. There was uh, changes in the way uh, agricultural work contracting was, was happening. But the degree in some places of, of increasing the power of the agricultural labourer, in fact, because I th as I understand it, it was the, the movement of, during the crisis, many agricultural labourers uh, just moved off and went into urban work uh, in order to survive because the agricultural uh, uh, labour wasn't giving them enough. So then you've got some increases in agricultural wage labour. So there you see the agricultural wages adjusting, uh, but after uh, some time. Um, and then, as I mentioned before, you, we, we saw an increase in lots of different locations of off-farm food processing. People. Uh, fattening chickens and, 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 and making supplies for the growing small towns around their, their rural villages. Um, so you, you're looking at a, an increased rate of change, or something that we've all seen happening. This is, this is uh, what's happening across the world already, but it happened faster uh, than it had previously done. We were asking particularly young people about you know, why you're making these decisions. Um, and they said, well, on the one hand, you know, we need the cash. And they, they felt very much under stress by this, this need to, to just find work, whatever it was. 
But at the same time, they talked about it was exciting. It offered a sense of possibility that uh, old-style work, for example, on art, did not offer. So there was a sense amongst the people who made these decisions that they were not just making them you know, being pushed by circumstance, but they were also <coughs> being pulled by possibility. Uh, so this is not a story of, of uh, a, a desperately sad story entirely. It's also a story of excitement uh, and possibility and movement. Um, but what it's done with all these young people and well, all these people who responded to the food price crisis and changed the way they worked and, and what they were doing to make a living, it's changed the shape of society we, we propose. So I've got a couple of examples here. So here's a, a a, a, a person in Makuru, an informal settlement in Nairobi in Kenya now, that person might have, for example, might have four or five jobs. Um, he's pulling this cart, which doesn't belong to him. Um, he's paying, therefore, a fee for it every day. He has to make sure he, he fills it up. Um, at the same time, he has to encounter just a bribe police every day. He has to encounter really tough traffic conditions and so on. He has this little sign on his cart saying, respect my job. Um, but at the same time, what he's doing is he might be uh, going to the sewers um, and, and um, scavenging for valuables in the sewers. Uh, this is uh, real information that we were given. Uh, he's also um, collecting plastic bottles and delivering them to collection centres and getting a small amount of money for that. Um, he also, from time to time, might get um, a job from... Uh, the Red Cross or an NGO uh, distributing condoms in the slums. So he's making money out of all those uh, inputs and his wife is doing the same thing. Together they just about make enough to pay for the food they need and, and educating their children. The dream is to educate kids out of, out of this desperate situation that they find themselves in. On the other hand, there's another um, impact, uh, particularly on women, because women were showing us how very much of the unpaid care is done by women across the world. So in all the countries that we, we worked in, what we found was that women were taking more paid work, uh, very often under very difficult, very hazardous conditions, very uh, insecure conditions. Um, at the same time, that meant that, their, that the unpaid work that they were doing at home was being squeezed they had to find a way of finding the time to do both this paid work and the unpaid work. The paid work was just getting a sense of empowerment, yes, and, and uh, getting out into society. And in some locations, you see some advances in the, you know, their, their workers' rights, like in the, um, the efforts that were being made by um, uh, groups of garment workers in Bangladesh. But at the same time, uh, there was absolutely no uh, instances whereby their care work was being supported. Um, and so other members of the family might be able to take up a bit of it. Children, uh, very often the parents said the children are sort of, we're, we're looking after them less, they're out on the street, we're worried about them. There were instances in Indonesia, for example, where schools were, were taking up some of the burden of making sure kids were okay for part of the day. Um, but that was a big message, is that women are joining the workforce in ever greater numbers, but um, the, the systems by which society looks after the, the, the young, the old, the sick, uh, and does the cooking, whether that's men or women doing it, uh, are not yet, have not yet caught up. So 
so it's squeezed. So that's the work area, the second area of big changes in diet. Um, and what, what people were doing was they were hunting for value, so they had to get more value out of what they consumed. Um, different uh, effects for different kinds of people. More men, we found, were eating out on the street. They were looking for high-calorie, high-energy food, um, and they were eating uh, often fritters and fried things, which are um, made out of starchy, fatty, uh, often salty or sweet. Um, very effective in giving you a, a boost during the day when you're running around looking for work or working very hard. We found children buying more and more snacks. So you have this, um, uh, this, this effect that you wouldn't necessarily effect, expect that when the prices go up, people actually are spending more money on purchased food. They're not returning to the farm and eating you know, uh, more, more food that you don't have to get from the market. So there's an increase in purchasing at the same time as prices went up. Why, another a reason for this was that women who are uh, now increasingly working more hours outside the house had less time to cook. Uh, and so they were relying on, uh, on sort of certain labor-saving inputs, some of which were prepackaged foods like noodles um, or, or, or bread instead of um, injera, for example, in Ethiopia. Um, uh, they were also children relying more on, on prepackaged snacks instead of uh, eating at home. So this was uh, creating amongst people across many different places a real concern about where food is coming from, what's in it, um, how it's cooked on the street, what's happening to the traditional food culture, um, and the, 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 the idea of industrialized food you know, what's in it, where is it coming from? Uh, there's a distrust growing amongst people about the food that they are. They feel themselves both forced but also uh, pleased to eat. It's, it's an odd uh, situation because a lot of this food is very tasty. It tastes good, it's fast, it's cheap. Um, so we have this written here as a question, but I think that the research proposes this, that the double burden of malnutrition the possibility of hunger on the one hand and of, of nutrition where uh, you're getting very unbalanced uh, kinds of nutrition uh, leading to ill health and even obesity can happen in the same communities and the same low-income communities. So just a, a couple of examples for food. Here's Kaya and Burkina Faso. You see some men with uh, some, some very tasty uh, little skewered meat. Uh, and the story was that They've got cash in their pockets and they can afford to buy these very small amounts of tasty meat. Their wives, meanwhile, were saying we're still at home and we're getting less money coming in for doing the cooking, so we can't afford meat, so we have to buy uh, little packets of, of stock cubes in order to try and make the, the food tasty because our husbands, when they do come home, they're complaining that the food isn't tasty. Uh, so you're getting an interesting kind of gender effect on, on what's happening with uh, the food availability. The other uh, story I wanted to give you an example was uh, in Guatemala, uh, where we have mothers and grandmothers talking about how they used to cook the traditional foods on a firewood stove, which is this thing, um, and the cooking takes a long time, and the, the stove is warm and everyone sits around that stove and, and in that <coughs> sitting that's when they talk 
that's where the children are educated, that's where family decisions are made. And they said that in the food crisis and afterwards, also uh, the price of firewood went up, and people found that A with price and B with time, calagas was now cheaper to cook on. And so what was happening was that the, the, the kitchen had become a little calagas stove, and it was no longer this, this food culture. So the changes people are talking about in diet is not just, as it were, the, the nutrition, of, uh, but also the, the culture, the, the way the family is shaped, the way the family uh, children grow up. So it's a, overall a, a significant change that we're seeing in the shape of economies, of food, of family. So, just coming to the end now, um, what we're saying, we're seeing here is a, a great transformation from the 21st century. The great transformation was a, a, a phrase put forward by Carl Polanyi in the 40s, and he was talking about the process of market uh, involvement of people in Europe, starting in the Industrial Revolution and coming through into the 20th century. Um, and what we're saying is that more people, as a result of the food crisis, many, many more people have joined the market economy for work and for food. Uh, so we're talking about an adjustment to a commodified food regime. Yes, there's pleasure in that. There's more choice. There's more choice in what you do. There's more choice in what you eat. But only as long as you earn enough. Um, and what we were seeing was people really struggling to be able to make the best of, of the new choices of being part of a market. Um, and they felt also an awful loss, actually, of the things that they had left behind. Uh, so it, this choice, in many ways, was <coughs> they found it to be emptier than they had first thought it might be. So was there a pushback? People on low incomes in all the countries said they expected their governments to make food available, affordable, and to make sure it's of good quality. Uh, they really thought that their government ought to be doing this, and a lot of disappointment about the degree to which food regulation or, or provision of food at, at, at reasonable cost. There was, there was disappointment amongst many. And then uh, the other point to make is that when we talk to people about a right to food, they almost always say straight away, but it's about a right to work. It's a right to, right to decent, well-paid work that allows us then to, to produce or buy food. Um, and they felt that their governments were doing really very badly about making sure there was employment, especially uh, employment of, of a decent kind. So the implication is that there is a, an absence or you know, there's not enough protection of people as they move into, into the market. We found that social protection programs were burgeoning. They're all over the place, but they're small, they're not universal, and they're very often about basic income support, which is fine uh, if you've got it. But in our households, virtually none of them had seen any of this social protection, any of the cash transfers or other forms. There were people who were talking about the, the good effects of government uh, uh, price regulation regimes. Um, so that was interesting because it's quite an old-fashioned thing, grain storage and then releasing grain onto the market and so on. That, uh, many people were quite pleased about that. But the big area where we were finding that people uh, were, were still feeling that governments and the private sector had not performed was in this idea of protecting the social. So that means protecting labour, so protecting against precariousness in the way you work, 
but also supporting the work of feeding and looking after the family, of care, not just seeing that as women's work, but supporting a change in the way care is provided. Um, and protecting access to good food, food regulation, food ways of, of pr protecting children from the effects of kitsy advertising for lovely little snacks, um, protecting their, particularly children, from, you know, so that what they're learning about food when they're young is something that they'll take forward into the rest of their lives. And finally, one of the things we found which was um, uh, surprising, but if you're going to do any of these changes to, to, if you're an activist, if you're in government, if you're um, in, a, in an agency, um, you're going to find that you can't find the data that you need. Um, certainly in the 10 countries that we were working in, uh, there was very poor data on precarious labour, informal sector labour, women's work, uh, unpaid care, um, all of it was very sketchy and, and barely usable by us. So, so we're saying the last thing, the first thing you need, the last thing you need is better data in order that you can then uh, take part in a, in a universal change that we need in the understanding of what it means to protect society from the effects of globalization and commoditization of food and work. Thank you. Thank you very much, Peter. Really interesting, and I think really interesting how much commonality there is across such a diverse group of countries and communities, actually, in terms of how this plays out in reality. Um, Liz is going to talk. Could I have a slide that? Yes. Um, are you able to just switch the slides over? Thank you. Um, can I so Liz is going to talk about some of the commonalities with the UK. Thank you very much. I really appreciate being invited. This would be invited to go first, which is a bit daunting, because my goodness, what amazingly uh, rich research. I, I really, I'm not just saying that <laughs> as, a, as a speaker. I really salute you. That, can we go back? That's, um, that's, uh, uh, I really salute the work that you've done. Uh, indeed, I have already used myself some of the work you've published in, uh, at earlier stages, not least because, I, I, I'm not showing it today, but I had a slide about how do people manage and food prices go up, which I took straight from your earlier publications, and that the first bit would show all the things which people in the audience in Britain were usually very familiar with, of how people manage, and then I would reveal that this was going on in, in the countries that you were working in. Um, I don't know whether anybody's very impressed by the cleverness of doing that, but nevertheless, uh, the point I was trying to make is that people all over the world have had to react to this, um, all of the things that you were talking about, the global, uh, the, the changes in food prices and the difference between the international figures that the G8, G20 were talking about or the newspapers are talking about and people's experience in their local shops and markets, which is certainly the case in Britain, and also the impact on labour um, I don't think we talked about it in, in the time that you had available, but of course um, a, a lot of people work in the food sector and, and, and the, the, a lot of that precarity of, of work is in the food sector in different stages of it. I don't think we have time to talk about that at all, but it's a very under-researched area uh, systematically in this country and elsewhere in terms of fairness. Um, uh, and um, that's right the way through from uh, producers, harvesting, processing, right through to retail and delivery and so on. 
And, and uh, the other thing that, of course, is, it, uh, has happened here is the, the, the real challenges over care, uh, both in terms of informal <coughs> networks of care and what had been a sort of nascent state level of care. So I really welcome the depth and the quality of the work, and I wish there was really good parallel work here. There is some on how do people end up in these problems and what do they do. The majority of them, I would bet to say, starts with food banks and starts with charitable sources interviewing people who are there. It wasn't the case five or ten years ago, either though there were so many food banks or the people started there with research, but it seems to me there's an amazing lack of imagination at the moment in how to do good research. I am deliberately being slightly provocative and also brief, because I hope to. Um, it's a more nuanced picture than that. And I'm basing that statement on all the things that I and my colleagues get asked to review as papers and books and all the contacts we have from people doing research, kind of thing, research, research, What we, uh, so there are many parallels in, in the research, you know, both from people and also in state responses. Um, and what I've put up here is just a few of the many, many reports that have been published in the last four or five years here in Britain. If I'd been talking to you 20 years ago, I would have had nothing to show. This has all come very recently because of a, a sense, I think, uh, of anxiety and crisis. Some of this has been triggered through faith groups or, or church. You can see the one on the right, 999 Food, is from um, uh, the Oxfordshire Diocese, which is a much bigger area than Oxford, of course. Uh, so some of it's come from faith groups, uh, and some of it has come from local authorities, and some of it has come from individual uh, working within a structure which they don't totally like. So Cheshire Hunger has come through a food bank, um, and some of it has come from NGOs, so there's things from Oxfam and so forth. But some of it has also come from local authorities, as you can see, who are having to pick up the problems uh, of what's going on. They really have time to go into that depth. And many of you may be familiar with the fact that notwithstanding we're a very rich country here in the UK, we have a long-standing problem of poverty, which has become an inequality, and not quite the same, which has really been exacerbated over the last five to ten years. That inequality has grown a lot better in the press, but poverty has also flatlined and, and, and if, uh, in, 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 it has not dropped recently. There were, was progress on child poverty, and that's been reversed. And I can give figures about that if people are interested. And we know also that for many people who are living on low incomes, whether those be from national minimum wage, which we do have, which is too low to live on, demonstrably by academic research and people's experience, um, whether people are living on the national minimum wage, think about that if, if necessary later, or on social protection, they do not have enough money to sustain um, even a reasonable, even a minimum way of living for more than a few months. This has been shown time and time and time again, as I say, in both academic research and in people's experiences. So there's an interesting question there as to why that evidence is constantly ignored, what, what, what's the, and what narrative is put in its place. But we know also, I mean, I, I'm quite clear that at the moment, the material side of poverty dominates. So people having enough money to be able to get to shops and to be able to buy food when they have met other bills of utility, gas, electric, water, and pay their housing. Because if they don't do those, they get fined, or their things are cut off, or their utilities are cut off, or they're made homeless, and their children are taken away from them. So the state and privatised utility companies are very punitive on people who default on those things. And nobody, thank goodness, punishes you for not eating. 
So you embody all of that misery and stress yourself. I'm not suggesting they should. I'm just pointing out that, of course, people are rationed in making those choices. So food is where people cut back time and time again. And I can show you lots of evidence of that if people are interested. So, nevertheless, how do people manage to eat? Um, a, a whole raft of strategies which you'll maybe be familiar with if you work in this country or which look, I think, remarkably like some of the stuff that you were just showing. So you, you borrow from your friends, your family, you go for cheaper food, you trade down, you eat more simply, you eat less, you allow stores, you, you perhaps link with other people. I'm telling a misery story here today. There are some positives, um, but they are outweighed by the misery stories. One of the important things is that people reduce variety. It's very hard to meet your nutritional needs on a very monotonous diet. Um, people do that because they can't afford to experiment, they can't afford food to go wrong. One of the reasons people buy fast food is because they don't have to cook it, uh, and because they know that everybody in the household will eat it, uh, and it's very predictable. Not necessarily nice, but anyway. And you borrow to buy food and all the rest of it, and you go without food. What increasingly is happening though, is that people are exhausting those strategies. So uh, they can't keep borrowing from their families and friends, either because they're fed up with them or because they're in the same position. Uh, and, and, and other reasons too. So people have always used all these strategies. By and large, the majority of people who find themselves in difficulties do know how to budget. There is a, group, a big response at the moment that, uh, which individualizes the problem. It says the reason people are in trouble is because they don't know how to budget, and then when they do buy food, they don't know how to cook it. And there's a there might be a small proportion for whom that is true. But the evidence is that for the majority of the population, they know how to budget and they probably know how to cook. Although younger people, of course, have been systematically de-skilled in cooking, both through the education system and from a food system which essentially says to people, you don't need to cook, you're pretty rubbish at it, why don't you buy our ready meal with the picture on the front, which is predictable and you can have it every time. So the real issues there, anyway. Um, so people will juggle bills. There's lots and lots of uh, grassroots research, people making videos about their lives, television programs about people's lives, presenting work, and lots and lots of academic research which shows how people do this, all of which is largely systematically do by the state. So what people finally do, some of them, is turn to charitable sources increasingly because they are desperate. And one of the reasons, key reasons people end up going to charitable sources for food, which are used as rubric of food banks, and now it's a bit more complicated than that, it's not just food banks. But anyway, I think most people are, I guess, have some clue what I'm talking about there. It's where you can go and get food, which has often been donated either by neighbours or a faith group, or has come from the food system through the so-called waste channel. So you get a bag of non-perishable food for a variable length of time. If it's trust or trust, it's three days, and it's supposed to be nutritionally balanced and you only have to have three such bags and then you can't have any more for a certain period of time. So, and this is for not usually fresh food and you don't have any choice about what you get. Lots of places now adding in children's nappies, pet food, and, uh, clothes, etc. Et really, that's another, I don't get sidetracked into that whole story about this response. But um, uh, what is increasingly happening with that is that people uh, find it very difficult to go to those. They might go to one that isn't their local one. There's a, a joke I heard just an international meeting in Warwick actually on Monday, which was about hunger and food insecurity, which incidentally picked up on the obesity hungry, hunger story, which is very strong in the United States and growing elsewhere in Europe, Canada, and so forth. 
But one of the stories that somebody told there, I don't know if this is apocryphal, it's not mine, uh, is that in Northern Ireland the Catholics go to the Protestant food banks and the um, Protestants go to the Catholic ones so that you're not seen by your neighbours. Um, okay. <laughs> but it encapsulates a story that you do hear from people who go to food banks about how difficult they find to do that. Um, my next slide I probably don't have time to show, but if you want to, have, yeah, if you want to uh, see more uh, of the data of the um, uh, research behind what I said about the adequacy of the national minimum wage or uh, social security, then have a look at the minimum income standards website funded by the Joseph Browntree Foundation by, by the Centre for Research and Social Policy at Loughborough. This, which I, I won't go through, but it just simply compares the consensually defined minimum income standards for different household types. Um, the worst one is low parent households there, to the national minimum wage between 2008 and 2015. And you can see the drop shows the increasing inadequacy of the national minimum wage. And that is not only because of the increasing cost of food, it's also the increasing cost of fuel, which has a much bigger impact on low income households, which I've discussed in the report, and also affects fast food as well, of course, because of transport and uh, fertilizer and the rest of it. Um, but also the cost of housing, which has become really scary in What has also happened, though, is that people are not only facing increasing prices, but loss of income. Wages have stagnated. We have uh, one in 20 at the moment uh, are on the national minimum wage. But the Resolution Foundation thinks that by 2020, it will be one in nine, more than 10% of the population on, on the national minimum wage. We have nearly a million people on zero-hour contracts, nearly half of whom are over the age of 25 have been with the same employer for the last 12 months. This was in the Guardian reported yesterday from the Revolution Foundation. In other words, this is not temporary work. This is permanent work, badly structured, exactly what you know. So I think you made it very eloquently in order to remember that. Zero-hour contracts are, are an absolutely pernicious part of the food system and other systems here in Britain too. I've learned about zero-hour contracts for many, many years because I worked in food. Supermarkets have been using for a long time. So, uh, so that is so. Social protection has been failing. What's more, since particularly 2010, we had it a bit before, but since 2010, we've had what some would describe a pretty pernicious attack on social protection and the social security system within Britain. So there have been cuts to levels, marked reductions in entitlement. There are caps on how much you can receive for a household, including uh, caps on housing benefit. There's the so-called bedroom tax, which is if you have a bedroom which you are deemed not to need for various reasons, that money is deducted from your benefits. I've already said that if you don't pay your gas electricity, that money is taken off your benefit. And if you, the, the, the answer to all of this from the state is work. So it's a very interesting conversation to have about that. There is not enough good well-paid work, particularly in the areas of the country where most people are struggling. And, and so um, there's a kind of game being played. If you don't apply for enough jobs, if you don't demonstrate that you have really worked to get jobs, if you miss interviews, you, you are what's called sanctioned. It's a wonderful word, actually. It doesn't mean a blessing. What it means is your benefit is stopped immediately. And that means all the passported benefits go too, child benefit, housing benefit, everything else. And that's one of the principal reasons people have increasingly going to food banks, because they have no money. And that's one of the things that we've been seeing increasingly. Uh, 
Citizens Advice Bureau, for example, and others, have been documenting systematically for the last three or four years that they are seeing more and more people coming to them having literally no money at all, and are deeply indebted. There was a letter in yesterday's Guardian about the interest rates which one of the main payday lenders operates, uh, offers. Wonga, their standard rate is about 1,000% interest. 2014, they were offering some loans at 6,000% interest. That's the world in which poor people live. However, what we are increasingly seeing, I would argue, is a terminology of demonization. So, problem is individualised. It's because people don't know how to budget and cook, and it's because they're too lazy to go and get a job. You do hear that from individual ministers, not in the current government, but in the previous one, some of the same people, of course, um, but you hear it very much in the right-wing media, where it's an extremely powerful narrative about how essentially wicked these people are. It isn't really the problem, if only they just have their ass and do a job. Um, and, uh, I think, um, yeah, there's a, and, and so this, all this um, damage to the social protection system, I've missed some of it out, particularly the housing issue, uh, is kind of ignored and, and, and is allowed to be entrenched. The latest social attitude polls have shown that people still think welfare is too generous. Welfare benefits are always called welfare, not called social security, to which people might have contributed and to which they are entitled. They're called welfare, which is becoming a very negative word. It's something more sort of dark, dirty, and something people should not be expected to get. There's something for nothing culture, that was words used by the then Prime Minister. Uh, the, the, the sky was not the strivers, was used by the Chancellor of the And that's very widely prevalent. Okay. So, uh, as I've already indicated, I'll just finish on this, that people are, are going increasingly to charities. Now, anybody who knows me knows that I am not a great fan of this. I hugely salute the amount of work that goes into it, don't get me wrong. I recognise people's sense of general public sense of desperation and wanting to do something. However, I feel that we have to ask a lot of questions. They don't address the structural causes, and they individualise responsibility. Broadly speaking, most of them are unelected, unaccountable, they are not even private sector uh, accountable to a board, they're, they're groups of people. I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a paid-up member of the Church of England, I, I'm a faith believer, I contribute to my local food bank. Nevertheless, I, I don't like the fact that there are often hidden agendas and that the food bank that I contribute to is not answerable to the state or to any of you, or the citizens in general. And I think that's an issue nobody's talking about. The, the, the system increasingly, and this is not just in Britain, it's across Europe, United States, it's becoming very corporatized. It relies on the problematics of the food systems, but, uh, and people's generosity, of course, in terms of time and giving stuff, although most food banks are awash with baked beans and tin tomatoes, and they please them, give them more, and they struggle to get the things they really need. And they, they do not currently remotely believe in demonstrates they are not the solution. And the evidence from Canada, the United States, there's been a lot of work on this in corporatization, but also on the effects on the ground, is that they do not begin to touch the numbers of households living in food insecurity for all sorts of reasons, some of which I've already mentioned. They, I think, permit this demonization and the individualising responsibility. 
and I think they depoliticize the link between food and poverty and hide the privatization of social security, although trust and trust to their credit constantly say they are not seeking to replace social security. There's been a huge round parliament over the last two or three years about whether or not food banks are an adjunct to social security and should they have welfare advisors in them, things like that. So there's a, it's quite an insidious movement. The government always denies it and says, no, no, no this is a exa wonderful example of general citizens doing their stuff. So they hide both that privatisation of social security and they also hide the corporatisation of dealing with food waste. What a wonderful double win. Take food that nobody wants to eat, give it to poor people. What's not to like? Ah, I'm being cynical in that. Please don't quote me say. It's a good thing. I think it's a deeply serious thing. And it, I would argue also that right. it was a kind of social field work at poor people's expense. So there have been a number of reports from charities and from, uh, for example, in the middle there, Hungry, Hungry for Change, a very good report I commend from the Fabian. Uh, society, uh, which really listened to witnesses and people from the ground, uh, books and, uh, and an all-party parliamentary group report, really trying to get at some of these bigger issues. Some of them, alas, still fall back on what we need is better charity. So don't go down that route, wherever you are. Very different context now. Um, David, how some of these struggles play out in Kenya? And you've got 10 minutes. Thank you very much. I understand. Because uh, in Google, I'm an engineer. Most of we do my work standing. I have a brief uh, presentation on that. which is a day when social movements and activists come together uh, to relieve uh, the struggles for social justice and human rights. So uh, on this day in 2011, uh, members of Bungela Mananchi and other movements went to the streets uh, to protest high prices of commodities, especially food in Kenya. And as we realized when there was the global food crisis in 2008, at that time, basically Kenya was uh, recovering from what is called the post-election violence, where great uh, violence, which is like the bread basket of Kenya, was affected, and this actually affected the, uh, the, Sorry, food, don't want to look at that. the no. food production. Stand, stand over here so that we can look at that. Sorry, <laughs> that's my paper. Okay. So we, we actually organized ourselves, and is a piece of parliament, and it is a space that provides uh, the poor people those who are not cannot access mainstream uh, uh, structures to discuss the issues. So Bunga organizes itself in bus parks, in the communities, in, in, in uh, newspaper stands, discuss issues. The main sitting of Bunga Ramanaji is at Jivaji Garden, which is the center of Nairobi, and we have got other Bungas across Kenya. So as I told you, uh, Bunga discusses some of the issues, and uh, in most cases when people discuss issues, uh, campaigns are formed so that uh, so that they can be able to, to be taken up uh, with other uh, uh, authorities. So for example, uh, during the food crisis, members of Bungala Manaji came and started discussing why is it that the food is increasing? And remember that uh, just after 2002, 
when the current government of Moi was removed, the price of 2 kg of uh, maize flour was like 17 shillings. And since uh, 1978, when the current Moi government took over, the price of uh, maize flour was increasing at a rate of 1 shilling per year. So, but between 2002 to 2005, we realized that the price of uh, 2 kg of maize flour shot up from 27 kenya shillings to around 50 kenya shillings. And this actually raised a, a very big uproar among the Kenyans uh, who are living in the rural areas. And they have asked when Manainchi as a space, people started discussing why is it that the food is increasing? So the first food drives in Kenya was actually organized by Bungila Manainchi in 2005, where Kenyans were saying that, how come that for 24 years, the price increased to 24 shillings, but over the only three years of NAC government, the price increased to 50 shillings. So members were saying that on an average, if for 24 years the price was increasing at one shilling per, per year, then the proper increment was to be one shilling for three years, so the price was to, was to be 30 shillings. And that's when we had this campaign called Unga Revolution, and we used to say Unga and we used to say 30 bob. We are saying that the right price at that time was supposed to be 30 bob. And therefore Unga Revolution in itself is a, it was motivated by the plight of poor Kenyans who could not afford uh, to, 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 to get this food. So the struggle, the struggle for Unga Revolution, basically, which is a Unga campaign, is anchored in the Constitution, Article 43 of the Constitution of Kenya. That states that every person has a right to the highest attainable standard of health, to access adequate housing, to be free from hunger, and have food of adequate quantity and quality, and acceptable quality, to have clean and safe water in adequate quantities, to social security, to education, and it says that the state shall provide appropriate social security to persons who are unable to defend themselves. This article actually was campaigned by Mugula Manage. During the clamor for the new constitution, most politicians and mainstream civil society organizations were concerned about the past of the president. But the Bungay were saying that we needed to have this right to food anchored in the constitution. And today we, we are very proud because as a result of our campaign, we have an article in the constitution that actually guarantees and obligates the state. And that's why when there was a food crisis, members of Mugula Manage use this article and ask the government that you are actually obligated by the law to, to provide social security and protection to the people of this Republic of Kenya. We have other articles in the Constitution, like Article 10, that talks about human dignity. We have got Article 11 of the Constitution that talks about uh, the state must ensure that they use indigenous technical knowledge and technology to ensure that food is produced in adequate quantity. Uh, now, when you come to the global food crisis, I told you that in 0809, Kenya was just outsmarting from the possession of violence. And this violence affected the Rift Valley region, Western region, which is basically the, the breadbasket of Kenya. And this impacted on the lives. And uh, some of the findings of the research actually are happening because you realize that many families produce themselves. We had families that were living in two roomed houses, they had to move one room houses to save money. We had people taking shower in cold water because they wanted to save money for food so that they could be able to, to, to buy food. Uh, we had people taking their children in our country, people sending away their relatives so that they could save. And most importantly, in the slum areas, young men took to crime. Young ladies uh, started sex work to be able to earn income. So this thing affected parents of the lower bracket. One thing that came was the Kadogo economy. Kadogo is a small economy where we had uh, you could go to, to the shop and have one spoon of, uh, of sugar at one shilling so that you could just get hot water uh, and the tea bag and go to the shop. This is how it affected the Kenyans in terms of accessing food. 
So uh, as I've said that, and therefore, the, the, the idea of the UNGA 30 bomb came in because people are saying that the government has to put the, <coughs> the, the food price at a level where people can be able to get it uh, easily. So uh, the crisis of 08, coupled with the, the postation violence, made Kenyans rise up and start demanding the right to be able to get right to food and right to social security for themselves. So Bungila Wananchi response organized campaigns across Nairobi. Nairobi has several slums, and we visited the slums using our spaces, mobilizing people, telling them that you have a right to food. But people think we don't understand, because people are wondering, why is it that the, the food prices shoot up very drastically? And these spaces provided uh, members of Bungila Wananchi with a platform to be able to engage the people and mobilize them. And on May 31st, 2008, uh, Bungila Mananchi organized what is called Stare Social Forum, where we wanted to have people march from Jimanji Gardens, seven kilometers to, to Ruma Sports Ground. But the police dispersed the people, arresting several activists. But this did not deter the people. These arrests and this uh, intimidation actually emboldened members of Bungila Mananchi. Indeed, although people were arrested, people reached uh, Starehe, and we had a very big meeting, and it then led up to the Unga Revolution that came, and this is, these are people actually marching from Jibanji Gardens to Ruma. Uh, despite the arrest, the, the meeting took place. On 12th December, which is Jamburi Day in Kenya, the day for uh, independence, members of Mugula Wananchi infiltrated the personal diaries, and one of the members of Mugula Wananchi heckled the president and asked him, if you don't tell us about growth when people are poor and when people cannot eat food, and one of our members was arrested, beaten up by the security guard, and he was hospitalized for, for some time. But this was part of the, and parcel of the struggle to ensure that Kenyans understood this. So uh, in 2010, from 2008 to 2010, Kenyans now said that we wanted to have a new constitution because people of Kenya were setting systems so that we could heal from the social violence. And as I told you, politicians, mainstream CSOs were concerned about past of the president, were concerned about uh, other issues. But we members of Google already said that we needed to have a bill of rights that ensures that we protect our people. And during the clamor, when we went to the, those conferences, as the social movement, we said that yes, we don't care who is the powerful, we don't care the powers of the president, but we wanted the state to be obligated to provide people with food or to secure people and provide the social security. And today, we have that article in the constitution, and it, is, it has helped us. So the new uh, food price, price hikes of 2011, Again, now providing us a lot of energy because now we had an article in the constitution and members of Bungila Manchi started to organize again, telling the government now you have to implement a of the constitution. We were met by economists, uh, people telling us it is impossible, you know, we have the global market, we have the WTO, we have issues of agreement, but we told them that we elected a government in Kenya that needs to be obligated. And therefore, this article 43 motivated the members of Bungila Manchi to start demanding. Uh, for implementation of that particular article. And other campaigns, as I told you, in the February 28, 2011, there was a, a vigil at, uh, the, uh, at the Kencom uh, Ken Square in April uh, 19, 2011. Uh, there was a demonstration because uh, the, the price of uh, kerosene and petrol shot up by 30 shillings. And you know, in Kenya, most of the production is dependent on, on fuel. And when the price of fuel increases, and the, the, the cost of power increases, it has an impact. So members went to the streets demanding reduction. The government actually reduced by three shillings, but we said it's not enough because it had actually increased by five shillings. 
And on Labor Day, that is May 1, 2020, <coughs> uh, when there was the state was having a, a mainstream uh, celebration at Guru Park, members of Mungila Mwananchi had a parallel one at Kalpunji grounds, where we mobilized the Mwananchi, and we walked straight to the main celebrations, and the people chant, started chanting, Unga when the president was talking, members of the were saying, we don't want to hear about employment, we don't want to hear about, Labor Day is about poor employees, what, what about those who are not employed? So people are demanding that the people who are not employed then the state should provide them social security. On May 31st, 2011, we had a, a day-long sitting at Harambe Avenue. Harambe Avenue is the seat of power where the president office sits. And during that day, we sat down from 10 uh, in the morning to around midnight when the police came and dispatched the people. The message was that people needed the government to provide a timeline of how they are going to implement the Article uh, 43 that provides social security. Uh, this is one of the public mobilizations at the CBD, where uh, members of Bungila Bonainchi were mobilizing the people and telling them that you have a right to food, you have a right to shelter, you have a right to water, and this is this one took place on, on uh, May 31st. This is a press conference, that this is where we were starting from, from at, uh, at the Freedom Corner, always in Bungila Bonainchi, we have a Freedom Corner, Freedom Corner where we convert first and begin our, our processions. It was, uh, it was uh, historic because before media, ignored Bungila Monaichi. But when we started pushing, when people started to demand, when politicians went to the estates, people were saying, we don't hear anything, we want Unga. Unga is made for like Kenya. And now the media started following us, and that's what happened. So we always engage the media again. Uh, yes, I'm almost finishing. And therefore, what I, what I want to say is that um, these are other uh, complaints that Bungia has, uh, has been able to take. On the budget, the, this is the Monaichi budget. The Bunga, we created what we call the Monkey budget, and we said that we wanted maize milk to be 30 shillings, milk to be 20 shillings, and these were leaflets that were prepared by members of the distributed widely and sent to all the MPs. And the government responded by, by providing maize flour, special maize flour that targeted the slum areas. So as I finish, I will to, this is uh, the campaign against uh, taxation of, because the government wanted, wanted to increase the VAT from 16% to 15%. I remember said you cannot increase it. The net effect that the government zero rated uh, tax on maize and, and basic commodities. Yes, in 2015, again, we realized that the agreements that parents have signed that is affecting our productions, like agreements on agriculture, the trips, the trips. And we tell the government that yes, as much as you have obligations, the law of Kenya dictates that any treaty must be ratified by the people to our We are saying that the government needs to review the such treaties uh, that. Are, uh, so maybe in, in short, what I would say that uh, moving forward, Mungila Mwananchi is partnering with the movements in Kenya and internationally in a way, in, in, a, in a bit of creating national solidarity to ensure that uh, the people who are coming from poor areas, the people who can afford the poor food for themselves are taken care of. Thank you very much. So I want to finish by saying this. Yes, in Mungila Mwananchi, you have a chance. When I say Unga, you say Tatibo. It means that you don't play the same day. So I'll finish by that. When I say Unga, you have to say Unga. Brilliant. Thank you very much, David. So from Kenya to the global scene and what this means for the global right to food. I mean, for, for all, of you, all of you who are familiar with the work of uh, Dante, and particularly Dante's Inferno, you know that the sixth surest way to hell is to follow an inspirational speaker like this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Friends, I just uh, wanted to very briefly touch on two or three things uh, which I think are responsible uh, for the food crisis. I mean, uh, one point that I'd like to make is that uh, there isn't a food crisis. Yes, there was a food crisis where the prices of staple increased uh, over a very short period. But for a vast majority of the poor in developing countries, including in India, there is a food crisis that exists every day. You know, and, and that's something that we should never forget. Uh, I mean, if you take what's been happening in India over the last few years, uh, we have a malnutrition problem, as our civil servants like to describe it. Uh, we have a stunting rate of 38%, which is higher than that of Kenya, higher than that of Bangladesh, of Nepal. Some states in India have a stunting rate of close to 48%. We have an overall child undernutrition rate of close to 30%, which is highlighted as an achievement because it's down from 42% a few years back. Uh, and it is an achievement because in the previous 10 years, we managed to bring down a child, child malnutrition rate by just 1%. So what you're looking at really is, is, a, is a, it's not a problem, it's a very, very serious crisis where uh, effectively what you're seeing is uh, one third of the mothers in the fastest growing economy in the world uh, for them, the hardest lesson that they're teaching their children is the lesson of how to live with hunger. You know, and I think that's the, the, that's the personal tragedy behind these numbers. Uh, India has, of course, seen a lot of uh, judicial activism. I'm part of the uh, Supreme Court Commissioner's Office, as well as a very strong right to food movement, which has, over the last 16, 17 years, managed to, through the courts, through the Supreme Court, got more than 200 orders legislating the right to food as a fundamental right. <coughs> Uh, and also now uh, achieved uh, legislation through parliament uh, mandating, very similar to what Kenya has done, but more, less in terms of constitutional change, but uh, change by parliamentary legislation, which now uh, provides very detailed uh, guidelines, or, or rather created legal entitlements in the right to food. Uh, and the National Food Security Act represents that. So you have 820 million Indians now covered who get access to very cheap and very subsidized food, primary cereals. You have 120 million children in, with midday meals, uh, free midday meals, compulsory. And you have 160 million children and all pregnant and nursing mothers in the countries who are entitled to maternity entitlements, uh, food, and so on. So at one level, it's a great achievement. But if you look at the magnitude of the problem and what's happening now, is that, uh, I mean, we have a government now that's not very enthusiastic about rights, as you might have heard. So. <laughs> But you have a legislation, so what do you do? You cut budgets. And it's the same story of austerity that you see in the UK, that you see everywhere, globally. So you have a, a budget of midday meals, for instance, cut down to, uh, by almost 30%, you have the budget for the ICDS, which is the only institutional mechanism for dealing with children under the age of six, down by almost 30%. Uh, so for our midday meal program, the per child expenditure uh, for me is down to 4P now besides the cereal that provided. And the consequences of this are tragic. And to cite an extreme example, in February this year in Bihar, uh, straight out of Dickens, Kashida, who's a 12-year-old girl, asked for a second helping. And she was assaulted by her teacher because there wasn't a second helping. Her father went there. He's a daily wage laborer, protested. And he was assaulted at the school, and he died. So, so that's the reality of hunger that, uh, that we're talking about in the world's fastest growing economy. Uh, so I'm not surprised that uh, by the story 
above, even if it's apocryphal from Northern Ireland, because these are stories that we hear every day. Uh, in terms of uh, the challenges that the global right to food movement has, uh, which have not been covered by the discussion so far, but have been alluded to, and which are important, I think the first area that we haven't even really looked at how to address is what's happening at the World Trade Organization and the impact of global trade on food and food prices in the near, near to medium terms. And if you look at what happened at Kenya in Nairobi in December at the WTO Ministerial, where essentially the Doha Development Ground, as it was called, was wound up <coughs> by the US and the EU. And you had the global trading system, uh, you had in the global trading system the re-establishment of the transatlantic hegemony of the US and the EU again the impact that it is likely to have on farmers in India or Kenya uh, is huge. And just to uh, point out the, the level of hypocrisy that we are dealing with here uh, in this divide between uh, the developing countries and the developed countries, and in many ways actually the divide between the global north and the global south, because Indian multinationals would do in Kenya exactly what Kargil would do in uh, India. So uh, you have a situation where the US and the EU are not even willing to change the external reference price for calculation of subsidies, which was set at 1986-88 prices. Uh, food prices have gone up 500% uh, since then. But countries like India, which don't have the cushion of subsidies that the EU provides to their farmers or the US provides to their consumers, have to stick to this completely uh, uh, bizarre calculation where their subsidies are calculated at 86-88 prices, which the EU and the US are unwilling to update to current prices. So what that means is that it exaggerates the level of subsidies, the minimum subsidies that you're giving to your farmers. And if I use the same calculation for the United States, uh, this year possibly on May's uh, with a new farm bill in place, it would be $6 billion of subsidies. But if I use the same calculation that the US uses to calculate Indian subsidies, it would be at $32 billion. So that's the kind of difference. And the fact that we're not willing to change that. India is being called out, or other developing countries are being called out for programs in food security, which, are, which exactly mirror what the US did immediately after the Great Depression, which is to buy food stocks from farmers and to sell it to consumers at subsidized rates. And this is being called out for being trade distorting. Whereas, if you look at the United States, because when these, the, when the agreement on agriculture was signed uh, in the 90s, when the WTO was established, uh, countries sat in a room and 61 out of 71 countries, including India, said showed zero subsidies for agriculture at that point. Uh, whereas the US and EU showed very high subsidies and they were given a nine-year peace clause uh, to adjust to the new regime. But those subsidies were put into something called a green box, which is protected under trade rules. Uh, and is seen as non-trade uh, non Uh The average spend of the United States on, say, a single program, like the SNAP program, the food stamps program, is about $1,600 per capita. So it's 47 million people uh, who are impacted. India has 820 million people covered at less than $30 per capita per year. And India is being called out to distort in global trade. For food crops which are for domestic consumption, as compared to the US, where it's corn and soya, which essentially goes for cattle production, which is, uh, again, the exports, which is really great distorting 
or creating ethanol and so on and so forth. So I think that's one big issue of trade. And linked to that uh, is, again, what is alluded to the global uh, uh, obesity crisis, 1.9 billion dollars, uh, 1.9 billion people overweight globally today. And malnutrition, of course, as you know, has undernutrition and there's overnutrition. And countries which have won the battle against undernutrition, like say Brazil or Mexico or large parts of Latin America, significant parts of Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, except say, say Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. Now, this battle against undernutrition, which is hard fought, which is won through legislation, which is won through uh, people's struggles, like we see in India or Kenya, uh, is going to be undone by losing the battle against overnutrition because we just don't have the tools, uh, the power today to counter the corporations. And the corporate influence on in food is the common factor that is responsible both for undernutrition and for overnutrition. And the fact that we are unable to make this linkage and break the corporate hold on, on, on the consumerization. So in a sense, when you say the end of cheap food, to me that's a contradiction because Never before in our history, actually, have we had empty calories as cheap as we have today. Yes. Never before in our history have we had sugary beverages as cheap as we have had today. And never before in our history have we had the, uh, the new normal, you know, the food banks, the new normal, which is, uh, and the societal acceptance for it. So it's 30 years of neoliberalism, what it's done not just to our minds and our material lives, but also to our moral universe not just here in the UK, in Europe, but across the world. And that to me is to reverse that, because what's the lesson of the right food campaign? We spent 16 years uh, convincing and creating a societal argument that the right to food is a fundamental right, and that it's guaranteed indirectly by the Constitution, because when you have a right to life, you have a right to food. I think the next battle for the next 30 years for us would be to uh, deal with this new model, the crisis in the moral universe, where we are accepting this new normal. The second thing that I'd like to talk about, which we haven't really spoken about, is this dangerous, uh, the recrafting of the global architecture on food and nutrition, which is happening because of the involvement of the private sector across the board in, in bodies in the United Nations. I work very closely with the Committee on World Food Security, which is uh, really the APEC governance body, global governance body uh, on food and nutrition. And if you look at the manner in which uh, corporates, which of course created the problem, uh, the Mars, the Pepsi's, the Coke, are now coming onto the policy table. And not just the corporations, but corporate foundations, the philanthropic Stepford Wise clubs, uh, who are making policy today on food and nutrition, having created the problem themselves and, and without addressing that part of the problem uh, that they have created. So I think these really are some of the systemic issues uh, about fixing the global food system, uh, that would be the, the, the challenges uh, in the coming years. So I'll end here, uh, Richard. Thank you very much for sharing.